My name is Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Fred. Um, I am uh, a local guy. I grew up in the Buckeye area, actually, Palo Verde, the big town of Palo Verde. We had 14 in my graduating class, and uh, it was uh, growing up as on a small rural setting was really, really kind of a neat thing. I mean, how many kids got to play cowboys and Indians with real horses? Uh, we actually had horses to play with cowboys and Indians. Didn't have too many volunteers to be Indians, though. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a neat way to grow up. Uh, also learned the value of work during that time. My father was a farmer, and uh, he, uh, <laughs> he made sure I learned that value. Uh, I tried to pass that on to my children. They got to chop cotton at an early age and discovered that they didn't want any farming in their life. Very, you know, they they were pretty convinced they didn't ever want to be farmed. My son still is involved in the agribusiness industry, only he now loans the money. So that's I think superior to chopping cotton. Um, I uh, uh, grew up in a very religious family. Uh, we, uh, my grandmother was one of the founding members of the Arizona Southern Baptist Convention. She signed the original charter. Uh, my grandfather, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was one of us. She doesn't like to admit that, but, but he was. He uh, was a, she always told me he died of minor's consumption. And he was a minor, and he did die of consumption. However, it was primarily alcohol. Um, but that <laughs> that led a little denial in that family uh, to, towards alcoholism. But anyway, uh, my grandfather was uh, on the Ni- National Wildlife Federation. He was the Arizona State Game and Fish Commissioner for 10 years. We had a dinner a few years ago, and, and uh, one of my aunts pulled out a check that he had gotten uh, was signed by uh, Ernest McFarland, one of the old governors in the state. And during the time my father, grandfather served as Game and Fish Commissioner, he would not take a salary. And eventually they told him he had to take something as he was retiring, and that check remains for a dollar. He was paid a dollar for 10 years of service. And that's the kind of values I grew up with. You know, I... I, I uh, I need to say that you can get here having good people around you, too. I mean, we hear often of the stories of abuse and things like this. I, I was lucky. That wasn't a part of mine. I, I was very loved all of my life. And, uh, um, but it, it, just to give you an example, here I was in this situation where I was loved and all this kind of stuff. But church? Wow. I just never... I mean, I spouted the words. You know, if you're a kid, you learn how to say the right things. And everybody says, oh, you've been saved, boy. You're okay. And uh, then they leave you alone. That's the other thing you notice is once you're saved, they leave you alone. And that's a good thing. So um, I, uh, um, I knew from the time I was a very young boy that, that, that the religion those folks were talking about and the religion, well, I didn't know what kind of religion because I didn't personalized my religion. I used the religion of my family. Uh, they told me what to think, and that's what I did. That's how I, that's how I went about it. Uh, and I only say that to, later on in my sobriety, 
I was able to personalize that God, and uh, it was a it was a huge made a huge difference in my life. Um, the first time I drank, I uh, was at a junior senior prom. It was at the wigwam. I had um, I I took another couple and my date and I to the to the uh, prom and. Little, didn't know, but somebody spiked a punch. And that was the best damn punch I ever had in my life. I'm telling you, it was good. And I drank a lot of it. And this girl I was with, uh, I thought she liked me, but evidently I'd done something wrong because in those days, your date took your dance card around and they filled it up and so at 10 o'clock you would dance with this person and you know, and that's how they did it. Well, at 10.30, she put this, and I said, I told her on the way, I said, do not put that, do not put her on my dance card. I will not dance with her. Well, uh, she, at 10.30, she put her on there, you know. (laughs) Well, um, as 10.30 approached, the punch got even better, you know, and, uh, so, uh, and then at 10.30, I can remember walking through, and there was lots of chairs falling around. It was like there was a wind going on, you know, and, uh, and these chairs were falling away and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and quite honestly, I can't tell you whether I danced that dance with her or not, because I, I went into a blackout. First time I ever drank in my life. And the, and the, thing, that, the thing that scared me was... I had these people that I drove to the to the to the place, and then we went into Phoenix to the Blue Grotto, an old pizza joint on Seventh Avenue back in the old days, and uh, I drove them there too. Then I drove them all home. And of course, I don't know what happened to you if you were ever in blackouts or anything like that. But the thing about it is, nobody will ever tell you what you were like. I mean, I asked her, I asked the girlfriend, I said, was I okay the other night? She said, you were just real quiet, which I'm generally not that quiet. So <clears throat> I guess that's how I act when I'm in a blackout. I don't know. And evidently must be a great blackout driver because I got everybody home. Nobody, nobody's parents called, no dents in a car, you know, a bar my parents' car. So that was my first experience drinking in high school. And uh, what scared me was the lack of control. That's what scared me. It scared me that I didn't know those, because the next thing I remember was like 2 o'clock in the morning. So from 10.30 to 2 o'clock, I don't remember anything. I don't know what happened. And that scared me. And so uh, you would think that somebody who experienced that might never drink again. But I always knew I'd drink again. I just knew I wouldn't drink then. Now, my daddy must have heard something. I don't know, I don't know what, probably heard the spi- uh, punch was spiked. And, and he told me there had been a, a farm family uh, who'd virtually lost their farm because their child had driven, into a, had driven in a car and killed like five people. And uh, all the legal action had virtually taken that. And my father was kind of a man of few words, and he said, you know, he said, uh, we're not going to have that problem, are we? That's all he said. We're not going to have that problem, are we? And I don't know why that clicked with me, 
but it did. And so I swore that I'd wait till I was 21 to get drunk. Knew I was going to get drunk, just going to wait till I was 21. And I did. I did. The night that, uh, the, the day I turned 21, I, I, it, was, it was pretty good. But the good thing is I remember every bit of it. It was, it was excellent, as a matter of fact, everything I remember. And then I started drinking. I was in a, a Christian college, Grand Canyon College, which is a Christian college. Went there because my dad was on the board. And it was a good thing for me because as being a board member's son, they'll never flunk you. And I knew it. I knew it. I could go to any class I wanted to, see. Didn't have to show up, didn't have to nothing, see, you know. And that's how I, that's how, that's how I went through college. I never went to class. Had a good time. Very, very social. And uh, uh, there's a lot of stories I could tell you about there, but uh, I'll go on. So I went on that way, and right after college, I began teaching. Teaching. You know, here's a guy that could barely pull C's, and I'm a teacher. So, uh, um, and I didn't drink much then. And the reason I didn't, I'm in the book, if you wanted to know what I'm, I was a periodic, uh, especially at the beginning. Uh, later on, I, 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 I progressed. But starting out, I was a periodic. I'd only drink occasionally. And... Uh, so as a coach, I was a coach and teacher, and I didn't want those boys to be influenced by my behavior. So they never saw me drunk. And I didn't hang out in the bars or anything like that. And uh, uh, I did drink, but not, you know, not, not too much. Well, as time went on, um, I, uh, I taught for uh, about nine Ten years, and I came back. My father had a what we thought at the time was a heart attack, and he asked uh, he asked if uh, he didn't ask me to come back. I asked him, and I said, "Dad, would it help if I was there?" And my dad's a hard worker, and he said, "Well, yeah, it would." I said, "Well, can we afford it?" And he said, "Yeah, come on back." And so that's when I moved back to Buckeye. I was I was in Yuma at the time, and I moved back to Buckeye. Still, as a periodic drinker, I would drink. You know, I was one of those guys that would drink. On I, I was fun to be around. I liked to buy. You know, made me feel good to buy you a drink. And uh, uh, didn't hang out in the bars that much. And uh, so anyway, got hooked up in this business association and uh, wound up farming 14,000 acres. Uh, flew an airplane to work, uh, living the dream, just living the dream. Uh, Sierra Negra was one of the ranches I managed over there at Tonopah. So, um, unfortunately, uh, my partner didn't have the ethics that I did, and my family did, and uh, it's it's an it's an old story. Uh, if you don't watch your money. Something happens to it, and that's exactly what happened to us. We wound up on millions of dollars. And it was about that time that my drinking started to edge closer. Yeah, I started drinking. Uh, uh, it was, you, you get in those, you start to feel those helpless situations where you can't do anything. And, and uh, uh, I was married to old number one, 
And uh, our home uh, was full of anger, but it wasn't the kind of anger you usually associate with anger. It was ice cold. I hated her, and she hated me, and we never said it. Our children were never, uh, uh, there, were not, there were not these huge cat fights and things, you know, you know where you hear of people that, that wasn't our house. Our house, you could drive by any time you'd think everybody was in bed, unless the TV was on. Uh, we, uh, uh, my wife began to exhibit uh, uh, signs of an eating disorder, and she had the dynamic duo. If you've ever been around eating disorders, uh, when she wasn't anorexic, she was bulimic. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it's something that uh, I wouldn't wish on anybody. And uh, during that time, we just kept growing apart. And she finally went to a, uh, a psychologist. And um, uh, eventually, after time... The psychologist invited me to come in. I don't know why. She was the one that was sick. So we went to that. But it, I have to tell you, that was a real turning point in my life. That going to a shrink was really a turning point. In my, I know you mentioned it in your story too, Alan. I, I, uh, uh, but for me, it really was. Uh, I would tell all my friends that I was just helping make her Mercedes payments. But uh, I was actually gleaning something out of that. You know, there, 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 there are certain situations where you just get called on your bullshit. And she could call me on my bullshit. I hated that, that she could, but she did. So we entered our counseling phase of our, our marriage. And uh, it was, uh, her question was, is this reconciliation or is this dissolution? Oh, reconciliation. Yeah, we're going to re reconcile. And our reconciliation primarily involved, uh, after the sessions which were in Scottsdale, because my wife couldn't go to a therapist on the west side, that's down in Scottsdale. And of course, yeah. so anyway. But we would go to therapy, uh, take separate cars because didn't want to have to talk about anything on the way home and wind up at Sam's Club, spend a couple of hundred dollars and that was our therapy. And we did that for a couple of years. At the beginning of that therapy, the, the, the counselor, uh, the therapist asked me, she said, are you, do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, What? What are you talking about? Alcoholic. And I've, I've said before, we all have people in our lives that, that drink far worse than we do. And I had, hell, 15, 20 of them. You know, I don't drink like he does. I mean, one of them wound up in the cool. <laughs> if you all know where the Desert Rose is, he uh, wound up in the, uh, passed out in the cooler water. And there was a pig laying in there with him. And, and the, the miracle is he did well. He was my champion. He was, he was the guy I pointed to. He is a drunk. You know, I'm not a drunk. Well, um, then she had me take the MMPI, 
Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory for if you're keeping score at home. It took me about two hours to take it. Uh, that's only important because if you're really obsessive, you won't finish it in three and a half. Uh, because what happens is they ask you the same questions about seven or eight times. And, they, and if you're obsessive, you want to answer it exactly the same way every time. See, so I wasn't obsessive. <laughs> I mean, questions like, do you like dirt? I'm a goddamn farmer. Of course I like dirt. You know, it's how I make my living, you know. So it was, uh, it just, you know, was the stupidest exercise I'd ever. And, and so when we got done, I said, I'll tell you something. If you can tell me one thing about myself that I don't think anybody else knows, I'll listen to you. Shit, that was a mistake. She, man, she started in, and of course, being a teacher, I know when you approach the red line, that's the danger area, right? That's when you're a danger area. And so my first question was, what's the, what's the deal on the red line? Oh, no, she's very smart. She says, we're going to go through all this other stuff. And what... What she told me was, and, and I didn't want to admit this to anybody, I would, to make you happy, I would harm myself. It's pretty sick. But I would do that to get along. If I wanted to, see, I was married for 27 years, and I always thought I would eventually get the key to make her happy. You know? I thought that I was gifted enough, funny enough, yada, yada. She never laughed at my stuff. But I thought, you know, I'll, I'll find a way to make her happy. And what I discovered, folks, the hard way, and I spent a lot of money, and I'm going to give you this for nothing. If somebody don't want to be happy, you can't make them happy. You can't do it. And the therapist I went to, I've heard of other therapists, the therapist I went to, well, let me go about the thing. So she goes through and she tells me stuff like that. She hit me about three times right here, right here. And I went, oh, shit. This woman knows what she's talking How can they get that from do you hate dirt? <laughs> I mean, I can't believe that. So anyway, I finally got her to the red line. I said, okay, what's that? She said, if you just scored a half point more, your wife would be here with your suitcase and we'd be taking you to St. Luke's. For what? Alcoholism. Oh, bullshit. I never wound up in a cooler like that guy I could tell you about. I never did that. She said, Fred, you're an alcoholic. <sighs> no, I'm not. And so I have the mindset, and I told, I think I said here last week, I went to, I went to, th I went to that 28-day program to prove to him I wasn't an alcoholic. I said, okay, throw me your best stuff, and I'll hit it out of the park. No problem. I'll take this deal, and I'll make it work. Well, uh, those people in that therapy program pretty good. Because <laughs> they could call it. They, we had this, 
we had this little therapist. Her name was Marnie. And Marnie was very vulnerable. I thought very weak. And of course, Mr. Champion, I'll step in and save the fair damsel in distress, right? <laughs> we had this mouthy, pardon me, Jack, friggin' attorney. Oh, my God, he was mouthy. And one night he got on Marnie, and I got on him. I said, you say one more damn word. I said, I'm going to punch your lights out. Do you understand me? And I'm, I'm sitting on top of the table over him like that. Not exactly good therapy stuff. And Marnie kept touching me. She says, I'm okay. Leave me alone. I said, he's, he's insulting you. It's okay, Fred. Move back. Move back. Go sit down. And that's how my therapy began. I have a singular fault. And that is that when faced with telling the truth or not, I'll always tell the truth. When it came time to do in there, you do your first step. What I know now, what I know I did... Because I reread that first step every year before my birthday so I can remember where I've been. And, and uh, I'll be reading it again another week or so. And um, here I went through all this therapy. Here I went through all this stuff. And I thought, you know, I'm going to put my marriage back together and everything's going to be okay. And we're going to be the good ship lo lollipop and just sail into the future, folks. You know what I wrote in my first step? My marriage is the pits, and I don't know what to do. Whoa. My marriage is the pits, and I don't know what to do. Well, I wound up giving that first step. I left the part about the marriage out. Um, there were 15 people at the table. They was kind of like this. And uh, I gave my first step. In many ways, my fourth step. And it seemed like it took three hours. They tell me it was only 18 minutes. And I was crying. And there were 14 other, or 13 other people crying at that table with me as I went around. The 14th is my ex-wife. Never shed a tear. Completed that program. Uh, 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 that was that was kind of what happened, and in, 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 you know, and then I've started going to meetings. A lot of them. I didn't want to go to meetings in Buckeye because I didn't want anybody to know I was an alcoholic. Uh, I went to uh, one of the meetings I went to regularly when I began was the old Saguaro Club was up on Seventh Avenue by Sunnyside Hill High School. And uh, I went there religiously every Saturday morning. And there was a guy there named Black Wally. And if you look at any place where there's tapes, uh, Black Wally is, uh, uh, he was, uh, actually worked for the city of Phoenix, but he was a hell of a speaker. He called it that itty-bitty, shitty, stinking, thinking committee. And uh, he, he, was, he was great. He was great for me. Uh, I didn't speak there for, I don't know, two or three times. And finally, Wally called on me and made me speak. 
and I can just barely say I'm Fred and I'm an alcoholic. Those meetings were unique because they, were, they would last until everybody had spoken, and it was a large meeting. Oftentimes we'd be there two, two and a half hours. And it was what I needed. It was what I needed. It, the first meeting I went to, I had the guy that eventually became my sponsor take me to it. Now you can talk about, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things in this program. We can call them coincidences, God shots. I don't know what you call them. Karma, you know, I, it doesn't matter what you call them. But the first meeting I went to, I was there. There was probably 300 people there. Uh, I was over in Scottsdale somewhere. And uh, a lot of the early stuff, well, I wasn't early, early in the valley, but my time was still pretty early for the valley. Uh, you know, 28 years ago. And a lot of activity centered around the Franciscan Renewal Center, who had a guy named Father Gavin, who was just an absolute, I was just mesmerized with him. I would listen to him, you know, couldn't, couldn't get enough of him. And uh, this meeting was close to there. And during that meeting, a guy got up and spoke, and I looked at my friend, who was who's, we were in high school at the same time together, and I turned to him and I says, is that who I think it is? He said, yeah. And it was a high school mate of mine. And, it, and see, what's important about this is that I thought, prior to going to treatment, it was just about intelligence and willpower. If you had enough intelligence, you had enough willpower, hell, you didn't have to drink, you know. You're just too smart to drink. This guy uh, graduated at the top of our class, worked for Motorola in the early days of the old mainframe, you know, when the, when the servers took up rooms and buildings. But he was one of the pioneers with Motorola. I think he didn't have some stock options coming out. He's, and he was a drunk. He was living in a halfway house. I said, no way. Married a pretty girl from, you know, from school. Looked like living the dream, baby. Had the wife, had the kids, you know. Fancy house, car, the whole deal. Smart. But he wasn't smart enough to quit drinking alcohol. A year, almost a year to the day after I entered the program, we, I went to his funeral. And he had been at one of the motels down on Van Buren and uh, laying next to an empty swimming pool on, you know, there was no water in the swimming pool and he's laying on one of the deck chairs. Went to sleep in the shade. The sun came out, cooked him, killed him. Heart couldn't take That was important for me because, see, I learned right there, it wasn't about how smart you were. It wasn't even about how much willpower you had. Because I could, you know, I could throw a will in there a lot. I could just say, well, yeah, I'm not going to take a drink for a while. And I wouldn't do it. I'm going to say, I'm going to quit for three months. My therapist pointed out to me, she said, you know, most people that aren't alcoholic don't set time limits on their drinking. Oh, you smart little. <laughs> what do you mean they don't set time limits? Don't real people do that? That's I just thought, you know. Because I've been kind of an athlete and competitive all my life and and so it, to me, it was a competition. I could, yeah, 
I tell my, and, and it was even better if I had one of those drunks I was telling you about a while ago. I'm going to quit drinking for three months. Want to challenge me? You know, shit. I couldn't last two days. I knew they couldn't. So anyway, that's how I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, through, that, through, the, through the door of, of uh, a rehab. Um, I read the book because I, you know, and I told you last week the story that got me was a guy, the rich guy, and then he died at, you know, I mean, he quit work at 55 and two years later he died in a sanitarium. And that was the story that got me. That's the one that really hit me. And that's, you know, during those times, there were there were a lot of things, you know, because I kept questioning. I told Alan the other day, my mom thought, oh, she'd tell her friend, oh, he's not really an alcoholic. He's, you know, he's, you know. Yeah, mom, I am. You know, she didn't, if she couldn't call her dad one, what do you think she's going to call her son? She's not going to call me an alcoholic either. So, anyway, uh, that's... That's uh, that's how we that's how we arrived at at the position of I I began to question whether I really was an alcoholic and I mentioned earlier about that God that I couldn't get before that's when I really started to get him now I'm not I'm going to turn this into a religious service or anything but I'm going to tell you for me the higher power is very important especially with the way I'd grown up in church and all that kind of stuff. But see, I got, to, I got to get this higher power of my own. And what I discovered is that a lot of what I had known growing up was like what I call Old Testament God. Thou shalt. You know, there's no, there's no gray area in those deals. But when I went to the New Testament, much more loving, much more accepting. And uh, and that's what I needed. I needed to feel like I was accepted. That if I didn't believe exactly the way everybody else did, you, I could still have a higher power in my life. Um, about the time, about the time, uh, I began to get sober. That little business empire I was telling you about started to crumble. Lost the airplane. Lost the cars. Lost a lot of money. And part of the reason I began to look at my alcoholism, and I should have said this earlier, is I was sitting outside my, 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 my ex-business partner's home one night, 3.30 in the morning, loaded 3.57. I wasn't going to shoot me. I was going to shoot him. And in that moment of clarity, I, there was a moment of clarity there where I, was, I had it all planned out how I was going to do it. I knew he slept in a separate room than his wife, and I knew all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, at dawn, I, I thought of this, who's going to take care of my family if I'm gone? Who's going to take care of my family if I'm gone? And that stopped me, and then... That the treatment for alcohol and everything that began to flow in there. I mean, it's amazing how things flow together. I remember right after I got sober, I said, "Okay, God, if this is really what you me what you want me to do, show me a sign." Arrogant little prick. Well, 
And, and, and I added a caveat. I said, make it one that I can understand because, you know, I don't understand every one of them. I know I'm not going to walk on water or anything, but make, give me a sign. Give me a sign that I'm on the right path. I mean, the business is falling apart. The marriage is falling apart. Just give me a sign that I'm doing the right thing. Four months later, I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, playing in a national tennis tournament, national championship tennis tournament. Now, it wasn't the pro circuit, don't get me wrong, but there was at that time a program called Volvo, uh, and they took ability groupings, and uh, in my ability grouping, we made it to the finals, and uh, didn't win it. But we won uh, a couple of matches. Got to play against uh, Oxon Hill, Maryland, and, and uh, San Antonio, Texas, and uh, Boston, Massachusetts uh, were the teams. Some of the teams we played against, and in L.A. So, and you know, I knew, I knew that I knew I was on the right track because those kind of things don't come to me. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm not one of those guys that uh, uh, sobriety <laughs> sobriety for me hasn't been uh, financially the most rewarding part of my life. I've gone through divorce, and I didn't drink. I've gone through bankruptcy, and I didn't drink gone through the loss of a parent and I didn't drink. Because at some point, and I don't know, I don't know where that happens, at some point I figured out, you know, when we first get here, a lot of us are, I'm, I'm just speaking for me, I, but when I, take, when I talk about this with other people, they kind of agree with me a lot. But when I can remember when I first got here, there were times that I thought, I'll show you, I'll go get drunk. God, what a brilliant strategy, you know? I'll hurt myself to prove, you, to, prove to you that you're wrong. God, aren't we something? And, 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 and we do that. I mean, I, I've, I've done that. There's probably others, other areas of my life I, I could tell you about, but uh, yeah. And I mean, I went through, I went through uh, jobs, and eventually wound up with. Uh, uh, my parents had a cabin in Sedona, and I was living in that cabin. Didn't have a dime to my name. Didn't have nothing. But the good news is that wasn't the end of the story, because. I have when I was when I was seven years old. You know they they send you they send you to these these church people send you around and they and they say, uh, oh you're gonna you're gonna have a mission in your life. You're gonna you're gonna be God's messenger in a certain occasion. And they didn't really have to tell me that because I kind of knew in my heart that I was going to do that someday. But I never knew what it was. I never knew what it was. I mean. Uh, I coached. I coached uh, uh, state champions. 
I had a, a kid that played in the major leagues, and I thought for a while, I thought, okay, uh, it's coach. I'm, I'm supposed to be a coach. That's how I'm going uh, to make my mark in life. And not that I didn't make, uh, in, in, in small measure, uh, but I, after a while, I knew that wasn't it. Uh, I thought teaching was it. You know, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I loved, I, I loved doing that, but it just, it wasn't it. It wasn't it. And I kept, I kept looking for it. And I was, I'm very frustrated because I couldn't find it, you know? Now I'm in prison. Go figure, huh? Now I'm in prison. And do I walk around every day and say, ah, here I am, Fred the AA member. You want to talk about AA, come see me. <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. The way, you know the way it usually works? I'll be walking down the walk and somebody will walk up and they'll say, I hear you're a friend of Bill W. <laughs> yeah, yeah I am. I said it made a remarkable impact in my life. And I said, uh, how are you doing? And we'll talk. We'll begin to talk. And I get to share my, a little of my experience, strength, and hope, which is what we do, right, with this program. That's how we spread this program. You know, and, and those guys that I had that drank, you know, and, and, and wound up in coolers and things like that, statistics show us that, like, less than 1% or 2% of the people who drink alcoholically wind up that way. You know. The majority of us alcoholics were, what, functioning alcoholics? Heard a guy say one time, he says, you know the definition of functioning alcoholic, don't you? And I said, no. And he says, one whose wife works. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. But, but I wound up there and, and uh, through a series of events, uh, I've always, I, I love being in business. I sold cars for a while. Uh, I uh, was on the, in the top 10% nationally of GMC salesmen. And then they went on strike. Wasn't that nice? I had orders for over 150 trucks. And no trucks are being produced. So, anyway. Uh, but that wasn't... I didn't, I didn't sell cars. I taught people how to buy a car. <laughs> you know, I'd throw the invoice down there and say, okay, now here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get this much over, and when you go in there and they tell you to finance, they're going to charge you 2%, you say, no, I really want a percent, and you'll probably settle for a percent and a half because that's how dealers make money also. So that's what I did. I taught people how to buy cars. And so I've had a lot of careers, lots of... Uh, um, just, just marvelous things. I, I think I told you a few weeks ago. I was getting up one morning. You know, as a farmer, you get up a real early in the morning. I just want to tell you a couple of things that have really made a difference for me in my life. One of them was I was listening to. I used to get up in the morning and I'd be putting my boots on, and I'd have the TV on just for some sound. You know, because I all my family's asleep. And there was a gal named Rita Davenport who used to have a cooking show here in, in Phoenix. And uh, she also is a motivational speaker. I didn't realize that, but she was. 
And she said something that really impacted my life and has made a difference ever since then. She said, if you have a problem and it can be solved by money, then you don't have a problem. And I, you know, you're 4.30 in the morning, you're, you're just barely paying attention. I'm going, what? Say that again. And thank God she did. If you have a problem and it can be solved by money, then you don't have a problem. And her explanation was very good. She said, what if you lose a friend? What if a friend dies? Is money going to replace that? Mm -mm. If your car battery goes out, you may not have the money now, but you get the money. You'll get that car battery replaced at some point. If you, if you lose a friend as a friendship, is money going to buy that back? No. So that was one of the things. The other thing was a story told by, by Father uh, Gavin. I mentioned him earlier. Uh, great speaker. Great speaker. He used to be on with Pat McMahon a lot on the radio on KTAR years ago. And uh, I'd listen to that a lot. And I, they, the AA hotline would tell you, Gavin's going to be on Pat McMahon today. And so you'd turn it on and listen. And, and he would talk about the newcomer, and he'd, he'd start to cry. And uh, he uh, emotionally was always touched by that. But he... He, uh, he told that story out of the wheelbarrow, and I probably saw it before, but I'll just quickly tell it again. Uh, he said, if I were to tell you we were going to go to a circus and there was a high wire act, and that the high wire performer was going to push a wheelbarrow across, across the high wire, would you believe he could do it? Man, yeah. a high accomplished high wire performer? Yeah, we're going to believe he could do that. He said, now using the same set of circumstances, I want you to change that word belief to faith. Do you have faith that he can push that wheelbarrow across there? And of course the room was very silent. And he said, there's only one way. You've got to get in the wheelbarrow. And that's how it is with AA. You can, you can believe all you want. You can believe you're a drunk and you can believe this and you can do that. But at the end of the day, you've got to climb on that wheelbarrow. And there's not, many, there's not many reasons for you to climb in that wheelbarrow, you know. But if you have faith, and that's what this gives us, that uh, hope. And that's what, we all, that's what we all needed. And I'm going to close with one story. There was a, and I'm only telling this story because I've got to give a graduation speech tomorrow and see how it comes out. Um, there was a, uh, there's a young man who was uh, 10 years old, and he was in a car accident. And the rest of the family was unhurt, but due to the accident, he lost his left arm. And... Uh, of course, a tragedy and, and everything. And his parents eventually told him, we'd like to, we'd like to give, teach you the martial arts. We'd like to give you an opportunity to learn the martial arts so you can learn to be confident in yourself. So they took him to this sensei, and I know the story sounds a lot like Grasshopper, you know, Mr. Miyagi and all that kind of crap. But anyway, just bear with me. So he, he goes there, and after a while, he began to notice that the move, he was teaching him one move. 
All the other little kids were learning lots of moves, but he's just learning one move. And so he asked his sensei one day, he says, well, how come you're just teaching me one move and you're teaching everybody all these moves? And he said, it's the only move you'll ever need. And the little boy was puzzled, but he went ahead and, and he perfected learning how to do that one move. Well, as, as some people who are in the martial arts are, he went into a tournament. And uh, using only his one move, easily defeated his first three opponents. Just it was a piece of cake. They, I mean, didn't even last more than a round. In the semifinals, he met someone who was stronger, bigger, and uh, it took him to the second round, but he defeated him in the second round. Then in the third round, or the, third, or the championship match, he got to the championship match. The boy was much bigger, stronger, faster. In fact, after the first period, the official went to the sensei and he said, you know, your, your student is overwhelmed here. There's no way he, he's going to get hurt. If you, don't take, if you don't stop this match, he's going to get hurt. And then the young boy attacked the bigger, the bigger young man and quickly was able to use his one move and won the match. And later he went to his sensei and he said, Sensei, he says, that guy's so big, he's so strong. How in the world did I beat him? He said, because the only defense for the move you made is for him to grab your left arm. <laughs> and that is what AA does for us. It gives us that defense we need against that first drink. Because that's the only one we got to beat, right? We don't take the first drink. We don't need more, nothing else. So we learn one move here. Don't take the first drink. And thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad.